to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou. It's Friday. We're happy it's Friday, but we've also got a couple more hours of going against the grain uh, for you. And of course, I mean, the news that was breaking just before we came on air is, of course, about the the jail sentence for Steve Bannon. Yeah. Four months. I think that's harsh. For contempt of Congress. Yeah, contempt of Congress. He's the first person to face jail time for contempt of Congress in 52 years. There have been something like 47 um, cases of contempt of Congress. And in almost every single one of those cases, a deal has been worked out before it got to you know, a conviction. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Steve Bannon says, and crazy as it might, might sound, I, I think I believe him that his, and this is going to be the basis of his appeal, mm-hmm. his attorneys told him that he didn't have to testify. And he says that he genuinely believed that he didn't have to testify because of executive privilege. Now, the court, of course, determined that executive privilege didn't apply to him, which clearly it didn't. But I believe him when he says that his attorney said, oh, nobody goes to jail for but this. Also, you don't have to do this. With regard to the jail time, I mean, it, should we think that uh, Bannon's attorneys refused a deal, that no offer was ever made? I mean, Steve Bannon also wants to be a martyr, right? Yes. And promised to make this yes. the misdemeanor from hell or Absolutely. whatever, right? Yes. So I'm curious whether whether we got to this, if everybody else has fitted figured out a deal before getting to the stage. Why didn't that happen in this case? Well, I think I think you're right. I think he wanted to be a martyr. I doubt that he thought that he was going to get four months, but hmm. whatever it was, the maximum was six months. And I, I think that he calculated six months I can do standing on my head. Yeah. Now, it's going to be in the D.C. jail, which is one yeah, of do the— do you think that was a good calculation? No, I don't. This is one of the worst W-O-R-S-E jails in America. Um— Four months, you know, he's going to lose 20 or 30 pounds and uh, come out with some experiences to to tell around drinks. Mm. But, um, yeah, he he did this to himself. All he had to all he had to do was appear before the January 6th committee, even if it was just to invoke the Fifth Amendment. Mm. And he just didn't bother to do it. We'll talk a little bit more about this later in the show. Uh, we'll talk more about this. Listen, maybe this is no big deal, but to me, this is it sent a chill down my spine yesterday when I saw the alerts about it and the chill is still there. It's the U.S. saying Iranian forces yeah. are on the ground in Crimea assisting Russia. I don't know, man. I, You know, I don't know whether that's true or not. I don't know how much it matters, but like the U.S. is sort of perpetually or Iran is perpetually in the crosshairs of some elements of the always U.S. The government. Always the boogeyman. Absolutely always looking for an excuse to um, ratchet up sanctions and perhaps do more. I mean, we assassinated one of their top generals one year ago, like a year and a half ago. Two years ago. Yeah. It'll be two years at Christmas. Yeah. Um, and so I, I don't like it when you see all of the bad guys conveniently showing up in, uh, this one, you know, extremely important conflict that we've absolutely got to do something about without actually ever implicating ourselves. And I have a theory about this. First of all, I don't believe the report as it's written that there are Iranian troops on the ground in Crimea. That doesn't make sense to me. If there are going to be Iranian troops, actual troops anywhere, they're going to be in Syria, right? Or Lebanon. Um, Probably not Lebanon, Syria anyway. Uh, Technical advisors, absolutely. Because we've seen in the press, 
that these so-called kamikaze drones aren't working the way they're designed to work. And we know that the Russians have asked the Iranians to send technicians to do whatever tune-up or changes need to be done to make these things work. So it would make sense to me that there are Iranians uh, in Crimea, not Iranian troops. Besides, the Iranians have their own problems at home. Yeah. Oh, you think? (laughs) Yeah. I think it's also, I mean, that raises the issue, of course, of uh, whose technical advisors are a provocation and whose aren't, because American technical advisors are all over the place. But we don't see the U.S. has boots on the ground in these places. And when other countries do, we say it's it's a conspiracy Mm -hmm. theory. You're a conspiracist. These are technically, we're technically advising the oil in Syria, you know, et cetera. Uh, And so, yeah, once again. One is a provocation and the other is, uh, you know, just a, just a nice guy with a, a tie and a clipboard helping exactly. people out. Yep. Mm-hmm. Exactly right. Um, we are going to talk more about that. We're going to talk more about uh, what's being sold to us as a fight by Democrats to get a $50 billion, I mean, actual specific amounts vary. But these sources that are supposedly whispering to these different outlets are saying it's about in the in the ballpark of 50 billion, 50 billion dollars earmarked for Ukraine before uh, Democrats lose control of Congress, which is odd for a number of reasons. Right. I mean, one, it's again, just please sit for a moment with a figure of 50 billion dollars. And then when someone says, no, 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 but this like isn't a proxy war. Imagine if the U.S. had committed uh, 50 billion plus the 65 billion we've already committed to like. Uh, demonstrators in Myanmar or something. Right. I'm not suggesting that we should, right. but it's just like, come on. Uh, yes. Some some conflicts we absolutely ignore and others we decide to, you know, s- support to the tune of $100 billion. But the other is, uh, it doesn't seem necessary. Like the president will still have the power. He doesn't actually have to go to Congress, right? We see set this That's up at the an beginning. That's an important point. Right? In May, Congress passed into law a Lend-Lease program for uh, Ukraine. Now, the important thing about this Lend-Lease program is that it does not have a sunset provision. So it doesn't end. It can go on forever. And this and means the president has a lot more discretion in terms of funding. He can send them anything he wants yeah. and just call it a loan. So some of this to me seems like posturing. Absolutely. You know, and it show, it seems like if the Democrats lose, what they intend to do is attack Republicans from the right yes. on being in, insufficiently imperialist or not imperialist in the right directions. Because yes. I do think it is a mistake to look at some of these right wing critics of the war and not look at their entire record and go, well, they oppose they, you know, they oppose uh, funding without question yes. this conflict in Ukraine. And so that means that they must be opposed to American overreach globally. That is not the two are not always the same. Correct. Right. Um, so I'm not going to hop in a, in a bed with Republicans uh, right quick. But it is it is sad that this is what our Democratic Party is doing. Yes, we are also uh, we're going to talk to Stephen Donzinger. We mentioned that his case uh, has taken a positive step toward perhaps perhaps yeah. being um looked at by the Supreme Court. We're going to talk to him about some other environmental lawsuits. Uh, we are going to talk about D.C.'s housing crisis. Uh, we are going to talk a little bit more about the disappearance of James Meek, who is that ABC producer who is working on a book about the withdrawal from Afghanistan, according to what I have read, uh, when the FBI raided his home, found classified information on his computer, and... Vanished. Where'd he go? 
vanished. Where is he? You know, I saw I saw an interview with uh, some of his former colleagues at ABC News. You know, interestingly enough, I used to work in that uh, investigative unit at ABC News, 2008 to 2009. Where haven't you worked? I know, Sean, right? Seriously. Um, he, he joined. He joined two years after I left. Uh, this is a very tightly knit knit group. They've won countless Emmy awards for their investigative reporting. Um, and his colleagues said that he just disappeared. That one day he was at work and the next day he wasn't at work and nobody can reach him and he's not at his apartment. It's clear that he moved out. He's not using a cell phone. He's not responding to emails. It's clear that he moved out or just that he's not living there? Well, there's no indication that anybody's living there, according oh. to what the police said. Yeah. But so what did they raid to find this information on? Well, uh, apparently they got a laptop. Now, I, I don't know if it was in the New York apartment or mm. an apartment we just found out about right, in Arlington, right, right. Virginia. But uh, he left a laptop behind. Right. Um, we are... We are going to talk more about what has been happening in Israel and Palestine uh, in next week, because, you know, we, we mentioned these protests after Israeli police blockaded a, a huge refugee camp outside of Jerusalem uh, because they were looking, you know, under the pretext of looking for suspects in a, the, a, uh, an assault that killed an Israeli soldier. Um, but protests against that have have continued and spread. Yes. And uh, yeah, I, I want to talk about what's happening also in the run-up to elections at the very beginning of next month. Mm -hmm. November the 1st, uh, Israeli elections. Yeah. And uh, I said it a couple of weeks ago when I got back from Israel that there are only two questions. Number one is security. Number two is, do you like Bibi Netanyahu or do you hate Bibi Netanyahu? That's it. So this far out, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a prediction that we're going to see what we saw in the last four elections over the, excuse me, over the last five years, that it's going to be a weak coalition government, probably headed by Netanyahu, that will be so weak and tenuous that it'll soon collapse and there will have to be new elections yet again. Isn't Netanyahu still in court? Yes. That's not resolved, right? No, no, he, it's not resolved. He's under indictment on official corruption charges, as is his wife. And nobody seems to care. Yeah, that's uh... pretty crazy. I mean, we've been laughing. We're we've been laughing at the UK. Now we might have to turn. It's just less funny in in Israel because people are dying so often. It's terrible. <laughs> yeah. Um, we'll talk more also about these uh, uh, bizarre rules for the West Bank uh, that have just a, a temporary document has just been replaced by a permanent document that really is going to make it incredibly difficult uh, for people <laughs> to visit for any length of time. Yes. Uh, lest they say, I also didn't know that some people are just barred from entry. Like if you're Jordanian. That's, that's new. If you're Jordanian, you're not allowed to enter yeah. the West Bank. If you're Saudi, yeah. Egyptian. Bahraini. Bahraini. Moroccan. Yeah. What's that all about? Simply not allowed yeah. to enter. Yeah. I, I feel like crazy. that seems uh, that seems like it, an action undertaken by any other government would, would yeah. raise some eyebrows. Don't you think? That's that's new. And another thing, when I was in Israel, again, this is like six weeks ago. Um they the Israelis passed a law saying that if you are not Palestinian and you have a sexual relationship with a Palestinian in the West Bank, you have to report it to the mm -hmm. nearest police station and you have to document every time you have, you know, relations with the person that you're seeing. Now, there was an outcry over this and CNN reported three days later that it was withdrawn. It had been a regulation. Mm -hmm. The Guardian is saying again today that in the permanent version of the regulation, it's been reinstated. Yes. 
I mean, and the Israelis, you know, uh, sorry, but the Israelis claim to not be an apartheid state. What's that? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I was going to say when I lived in Laos, there was a rule. I'm pretty sure this was a formal rule and not an unru- but that you're not allowed. A non-Lao person's not allowed to spend the night with a Lao person unless they're married. Wow. Yeah. And I always took it as part of the Lao government's efforts to not, I mean, the Thai government, you know, Thailand's a great place. You should go visit it. It's wonderful for a lot of reasons. But the government really basically, in all its like land of smiles, we're so friendly, come visit us. They're they're not avoiding their reputation as a hub for sex tourism, right? They're not saying, no, no, please don't come here and exploit our our women. Right. And the Lao government has gone to some efforts to distinguish itself from that. And this was one of them. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't particularly strictly enforced, but someone might come around and ask you your intentions if you were obviously in a relationship with someone after a while. What was the punishment? I have no idea. And and I never heard of anyone who was actually punished. It was more, uh, yeah, yeah, I thought that was pretty funny. Um, I also wanted to just respond to, uh, you know, Gustavo Petro has only recently taken power mm-hmm. in Colombia. Uh, and the Wall Street Journal today had a story about coca producing acreage in that country, noting that according to the UN, Colombia has posted a sharp rise in coca cultivation, raising concerns among U.S. anti-narcotics officials about how the country's new government will bring drug trafficking under control. And I just he hasn't been say, in office long enough to even be able to gauge coca production. Also just get the hell out of here, U.S. anti-narcotics officials. It's not your country. Like Maybe no. focus on why there's so much demand in the United States. Uh, the U.N. says that land used to grow coca expanded 43% from 2020 to 21. Uh, and again, I just like to, this is like a steady rise, right? It hasn't, years, decades of our uh, incredibly violent war on drugs, surprise, surprise, haven't really done anything to eradicate this because uh, the way that we prosecuted that war didn't really do anything to improve the finances and well-being and security of the people who end up growing coca, either out of desperation or coercion, which is leave aside the people who absolutely should have the right to grow it as a crop because it's, you know, part of their culture and tradition. Um, But the Wall Street Journal, uh, of course, didn't talk to any Colombians of or coca farmers, of right? Course. But they did talk to, to a, DEA people. Exactly. A DEA a counter-narcotics agent who said it, the, the data was demoralizing. Oh. In light of the lives lost by the U.S. and Colombia battling uh, the cocaine trade, I mean, just do something different. If yeah. you know what, if you are really concerned that people are people are dying and nothing is changing, do a different thing, yeah. and advocate for a different thing, That's and right. support the political forces that that will promote that different thing. Don't just wring your hands and say, I "Guess we got to go back in because so many of my DEA brothers died trying to like bomb our way to uh, exactly. the end of the cocaine trade." Exactly. Just made me mad. <laughs> Riled me up this you. morning. <laughs> you know what? There's more. There's more we could talk about, but I know we have our first guest here, so we'll take a quick break here on political misfits and and come back and get into it. We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in DC, and we'll be right back. Welcome 
Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou, taking a look now at uh, a first step, but a good step in the case of Stephen Donzinger, mm-hmm. and talking a little bit about the, you know, some legal trends with regard to the fossil fuel industry and, and how effective they can be. Joining us for this conversation is Stephen Donzinger himself. He, as listeners probably know, is a lawyer, writer, former journalist, and environmental advocate who is right now known best for leading a 24 years and counting legal battle against the Chevron Corporation related to its contamination of the Ecuadorian rainforest. Stephen, thanks for joining us again. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, I want to start with your case because you announced this week uh, a positive step. Uh, Of course, you took your criminal contempt conviction uh, to the Supreme Court, and the court just this week has, in your words, ordered the Department of Justice to explain why they allowed a private oil company to prosecute and detain me. And I think, as you pointed out, the justices unanimously decided that they do indeed want the Justice Department to defend its decision to... Uh, I'm going to try to summarize it here, and I'll let you correct me if I miss a detail. But basically, allow your prosecution to continue, though the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York declined to pick up uh, the novel charges uh, uh, presented by a judge. And instead, that judge, who had economic ties to the Chevron Corporation, was able to appoint a private prosecutor whose firm had business ties with Chevron and who consulted extensively with the law firm that represents Chevron, which says it was offering the work pro bono, but basically it was letting Chevron fund and direct a prosecution of you that state authorities had decided was not, did not have enough merit for them to pick up. And so, the Supreme Court apparently wants to understand why. And and so how significant is this? Well, thank you. That was really a good summary. Um, it's, it's significant. You know, I don't want to overplay it, but I think it's very significant in this sense. I was targeted, as you said, with the nation's first um, corporate prosecution. That is, uh, Chevron, with the help of a judge, two judges in New York, essentially took control of the prosecutorial machinery of the U.S. government and had its lawyers prosecute me in the name of the government for, in my opinion, completely unfounded criminal contempt charges related to their retaliation campaign against me for helping indigenous peoples in Ecuador win a a big legal judgment against Chevron down in that country. So they have tried to sweep this under the rug. Um, we have, you know, my position is I'm going to fight this with any space that exists in our legal system, even though I never really have great hope that we're ultimately going to prevail. But I think it's important to create the historical record that's accurate about what really happened. I think it's important to make the judicial authorities who have orchestrated this deal with these issues, deal with these conflicts, deal with this complete, in my opinion, lack of ethics. So, the fact that the court, the Supreme Court, no less, which is really my last layer of appeal on this you know, contempt conviction, um, has ordered the Department of Justice to file a brief to explain why they did this is, I think, a really good sign. It really shows the court is taking this seriously and is, and is bothered by what has happened. And I'll also say that without 
people like yourselves and other independent journalists and you know people all around the world calling attention to this outrageous thing that they did, um, I, I'm not so sure the court would have paid serious attention to this. So it all matters, and I'm, I'm, I'm hoping this will lead ultimately to a, a reversal of my contempt conviction. I mean, you you note yourself that the Supreme Court only takes up a fraction of the cases that are submitted to it. But I wonder if, you know, if there's something to be learned even from what the government is going to have to present, which is also in a pretty short timeline. I think the deadline is November 16th. So is there is there a chance that we see something, learn something uh, from just the documents that they're going to have to submit at this first step? Yes, absolutely. I mean, basically... They're going to have to come up with a position, um, it, you know, that is in opposition to me. But the problem they have is it's hard to oppose me. I mean, who really would openly support a corporate criminal prosecution in any rule of law country? So they've tried to kind of wash their hands of this. You know, I've been asking my lawyers and I've been asking Attorney General Garland. Garland for, you know, months and months and months to intervene and take this prosecution over. You know, I was the only lawyer probably in U.S. history begging to be prosecuted by the Department of Justice because I I wanted to deal with professional prosecutors, Yeah, you know, people who I could have a conversation with. You know, the the so-called prosecutor, Rita Glavin, um, that the judge appointed, who's a Chevron lawyer, wouldn't even talk, have a normal conversation with my lawyers. I mean, she was all about the retaliation. She was working for Chevron, yet she was filing her papers in the name of the U.S. government. I mean, it was really an extraordinary thing mm-hmm. I've never seen before. I hope never to see again. So they're going to have to figure out what they're going to say. I'm urging them to agree with me and to ask the court to take up the case and reverse my conviction. That's not unheard of, by the way. Mm-hmm. You know, they could do that. I think they should do that. I think this is one of those rare cases where they should just agree with me and join with me and ask the court to take the case. And maybe the fact that all of them at least wanted to see what the government had to say is a sign that uh, there's there's some reason to be hopeful that this will move further. I think that's true. And, you know, I'll add that my argument, you know, look, this is about, you know, a corporate takeover of, of our a piece of our judiciary in the United States. But, um, you know, the technical argument behind it is that it violates the separation of powers doctrine. Hmm. It really was a, a seizure of power by a judge that is reserved under our Constitution to the executive branch, to the, to the prosecutorial people. And they had already reviewed this and rejected the case. So at that point, you know, under the technical legal argument, it should have been dropped. You know, so the judge at that point, no judge should have the authority to prosecute, that is to serve as grand jury, judge, jury, and prosecutor in the same case. And that's essentially what Judge Kaplan tried to do in my case. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, you know, you mentioned the role that um, public attention can have. And I, I also wonder if um, there's, there's a, a little bit of a shift in terms of... Uh, Public, public opinion about fossil fuel companies that uh, is maybe being borne out by some of these lawsuits against these companies. Uh, your lawsuit down in Ecuador was for a specific damage to a specific region and a specific group of people. But more and more, uh, we are seeing states sue oil giants for 
climate change damages, a sort of bigger concept. And the latest is New Jersey. New Jersey is suing five oil giants for liability for the costs of climate change-related damages to the state. Um, They're suing ExxonMobil, Shell Oil, Chevron, BP, ConocoPhillips, and the American Petroleum Institute, saying that the companies knew for decades that the fossil fuels they were extracting and producing and refining were a major cause of climate change. But instead of warning the public, they waged a public relations campaign to sow doubt with the goal of confusing the public, delaying the transition to a lower carbon economy in future, increasing their own profits and further deepening dependence on their products. And I wonder what you make of of lawsuits like this one in New Jersey and, and a few others as a tool for actually changing the behavior of these companies. Well, I think it matters a lot. Look, I think all of these things matter. You know, the work I did and my fight against, you know, Chevron and this judicial, this corporate takeover of the judiciary. You know, there's now eight U.S. states that have sued the fossil fuel industry for deception on the issue of climate. Um, You know, there's a lot of municipalities who have sued. There's, you know, an effort to create, make ecocide uh, an international atrocity crime. There's a fossil fuel nonproliferation treaty being, you know, presented to governments around the world. There's all sorts of things happening in the legal space um, around climate that together really, I think, create a pretty powerful force to raise the cost on the industry for their pollution, for the damage they're causing, and to really create greater public consciousness of how to connect all these dots so we can, you know, really create the change, the transformational change that's needed to save the planet. I think all of this stuff <clears throat> matters, but I will say that none of it will get very far without really a significant degree of citizen mobilization, you know, public outcry, um, good old-fashioned kind of political organizing around these things. And I, I, I want to point out that it's very important to connect the dots, that there are, <clears throat> there are all of these um, things happening that appear to be different or in different places, but they're all connected. and. You know, I think it's important we understand there's a powerful forces out there that are starting to take shape, take shape that I think can make collectively make a real difference. It's important we be aware of them and they be, you know, the information be presented. By the way, the mainstream media will never explain it like I just did. I mean, they, they don't want people to connect the dots. Um, you know, it's everything seems like oh, there's a lawsuit here and a thing over there. And there's the Steve Donziger thing and yeah. the store thing. You know, and it's but it is all part of the same force um, of people and lawyers and activists and others around the, and journalists like yourselves around the world who are doing things that collectively I think create something very significant. I mean, the Supreme Court thing that we just talked about in my case, um, I think is an example of that. I think it's a product of that. I, I don't think that would have happened had there not been sort of greater awareness around these issues and around what happened in these specifically brought to the world's attention in part by people like yourselves and other independent journalists. I mean, I think the mainstream is sort of complicit in in helping these companies present their, you know, every couple of years, their new face, the new green face of BP, the new, you know, saying like, talk to us about your new environmental project or whatever. And you just have to think, I don't know. I, I think these are not... 
leopards that are going to change their spots, you know, and so you can't expect. I mean, I think you could see very clearly with the case of, of Chevron and what happened to you. This was, you know, a fight that lasted decades. You know, there was no point at which Chevron transformed its uh, corporate culture and its overall goals and decided they didn't include, you know, driving, trying to drive into the dirt someone who had won a court victory against them for the consequences of of their extraction projects, you know? And so I think, yeah, I think that often the mainstream is is complicit in in giving these other, give these these companies an opportunity to to present themselves as as changed and as reliable partners in a new sustainable future, which I think they just patently cannot be. That's exactly right, and and I'll say that um, <clears throat> you know the the greenwashing that takes place in Chevron. I mean, there are all these oil companies greenwash. Chevron is one of the leading greenwashers in the world. I mean, they spend virtually nothing on clean energy transformation, and ninety percent of their advertising is about clean energy. You know, so it's a, there's a mass deception going on presented by the industry with the complicit of PR agencies, law firms, and advertising agencies that make money from it. You know, and we need to pinpoint all the elements in our society that are complicit in, in the falsehood, which is literally duping people such that we can't really make the necessary changes fast enough to save the planet. I'll just give one quick example. You know, a lot of people don't know this, but the New York Times actually does greenwashing for the oil companies. They have their own ad agency now called T-Bran. And BP and Chevron are among the oil companies that have paid T-Bran to create essentially greenwashing videos and ad campaigns that are run on the New York Times website. Um, So, you know, think about that. Why is the coverage in the New York Times, I think, so lacking when it comes to the real dangers of climate? Or in my case, they completely ignore what happened to me. Um, you know, there, there's economic factors at play with the with the advertising-based media that basically prevent them from telling the truth about a lot of the issues that we're talking about right now on the show. And people people need to be aware of these things. I also thought it was very interesting that you uh, invoked the power and uh, desperation to protect corporate profits in a piece that you wrote for The Guardian about the Moore versus Harper case that is going to be before the Supreme Court uh, in this term. We have talked about this case on the show before. This is about the independent electors theory uh, that basically says— State legislatures have absolute authority when it comes to holding elections, which means that their actions with regard to elections wouldn't necessarily be constrained by things like the state's constitution or the state's judicial system, which means they would maybe have the power to uh, dodge the popular will through extreme gerrymandering, because that is something that, of course, goes through state courts. Um, uh, getting rid of provisions for secret ballots or, or sticking with particular electors or just wiping the slate of electors if they don't uh, elect the guy that you like. Uh, and we have talked about this uh, in the context of its obvious anti-democratic implications. But a lot of times this conversation about uh, the fight against democracy in the United States, it's sort of uh, it's sort of like stays in the realm of the cultural much too often, where it's just like some bad dudes with with bad attitudes who want to impose some kind of, uh, you know, Christian theocratic rule on the United States are the anti-democratic forces. But you wrote about, you know, listen, don't don't ignore the role of of 
corporations trying to protect their profits uh, in in this mix and even in cases like this that don't appear to be about business. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about why we should why and how we should identify, uh, you know, the actions of corporations defending their profits, even in uh, lawsuits like this. Well, uh, thank you for raising that issue. I mean, I'll say this. I would urge people to sort of rethink their thoughts about law in general, because you're seeing a series of things happen through the law that the hard right in the United States, the corporate elite are doing to legitimize and quote unquote legalize a real power grab and making more money at the expense of the rest of the working people. And you see this through a series of cases. Some of them, you know, like the the overturning of the Roe v. Wade case, take place in fields that appear to be about reproductive rights, and they are. Mm-hmm. But what we're seeing in that case, and a whole host of other cases, is a real, you know, transformation of our highest court into more of a political body than a judicial body that's carrying out an, an extremist right wing corporate agenda in alliance with what I would call religious fundamentalists. And, you know, the Harper case, and people need to understand this, like it has been written about pretty significantly in a lot of areas of the press, but like the big media kind of dances around the edges, like they're not nailing it. I mean, that case, which would essentially prevent court oversight of any issue related to elections, okay, it would provide a a state legislature the authority essentially to send a fake slate of electors to the Electoral College. Um, you know, this is what Donald Trump tried to do this for the last election. If you remember, he lost states like Georgia and Arizona and Michigan and then tried to get them to send electors who would vote for him, even though he had lost the popular vote in those states. And this, this case would essentially give power to state legislatures to do exactly what Trump asked in the last election. Now, if that were to happen, that is, if the Moore case, the court rules on this case in the way that I think they're going to rule, it doesn't mean that the election is necessarily going to be stolen, but it does mean that if you get a guy like Trump in there or someone of his ilk um, who wanted to execute such a scheme, um, they would have the legal authority to do it. And, you know, I'll remind people, if you look back to some of the worst moments in, you know, in 20th century history, like let's look at Germany in the 1930s, 1940s. Everything that the Nazis did was done ostensibly through the law, okay? They were passing laws to legitimate everything they were doing. And, you know, when you call something legal, it has a powerful psychological impact on people. People think, oh, it's legal. and It's right. That's the way it is. It's legitimate. And uh, what I'm seeing now in this country is sort of some of the same thing, where these really extremist things that are anti-democratic, authoritarian, authoritarian, and even fascist at times are being given the legitimacy of law, legal legitimacy, through these maneuvers that are taking place in very sophisticated ways through the Supreme Court and elsewhere. And again, the media is not explaining, in my opinion, the media is, you know, they're covering these little things that are happening. They're not connecting the dots and providing people a coherent framework to really understand how bad it is. And I just think the dangers we're facing through our 
you know, our liberal democracy. I mean, look, the United States democracy has obviously a lot of flaws. I'm not defending it like it's a great democracy. We have freedoms in this country. We have a liberal democracy that is under attack by forces that have gotten control of, you know, a lot of the courts, and they're using the law to try to legitimate what is, to me, a massive power grab that's really funded to a great degree by the fossil fuel industry and corporations. Yeah, and, you know, I think I think part of the reason that these dots aren't connected is because, you know, it's sort of these tools in the hand of hands of some, you know, easily identified villains who are doing, uh, you know, culturally inappropriate things, which, of course, I think are also vile, uh, trying to restrict access to abortion, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, it's easy to point to them and vilify them and say this is wrong, this is dangerous, when the same thing is being done by the very uh, corporations that fund your newsroom and who are, you know, the supposedly the bedrock our, uh, of our economy, it's harder to point out. And so the whole picture, as you say, it becomes it becomes incoherent because you, you aren't connecting the right dots. And so you just think uh, it, it just becomes sort of a discrete bad actors instead of uh, a, a systemic problem. Right. It, it becomes confusing. Mm-hmm. A lot of noise out there. Like, people sense it's not right. Like, like, they get that on an emotional level. But it's confusing. There's a lot of noise. There's a lot of articles. There's a lot of information sources. And I would argue there's no real coherent framework to understand how it all connects, you know, to understand the larger forces at play. And that's deliberate. I mean, you know, that, that's a tool of empowerment, right? Like, people get that framework, and then they can use it to quickly understand and then organize and act. And, you know, industry doesn't want people mobilized. I mean, they want people, you know, their idea of democracy is every four years we have a vote, you know, and then yeah. go home. And then let the, let the leaders take care of it. The, lead, the elected leaders, quote unquote, who are, you know, receiving campaign contributions constantly from the fossil fuel industry. Yes, of course. And, and the cor- corporations. So, you know, my idea of democracy is actually much more engaged democracy where people are mobilized, uh, you know, without fail every day of the year to engage on issues that really matter to the majority of the people. And, you know, you're not going to get that degree of mobilization when information sources in your society are not explaining things in a way that people can comprehend what's really happening. Stephen Donzinger, always a pleasure to talk to you. Where should people go to find out more of what you're writing about and to keep an eye on your case, which is, of course, ongoing? Well, thank you. Go to go to freedonziger.com. It's our website, F-R-E-D-O-N-Z-I-G-E-R. By the way, just to be clear, while I served, quote-unquote, 993 days of detention at home and in prison for this unfounded case that really never should have happened, um, I'm still not totally free. I don't have a passport. I don't have my law license. Um, I don't have a bank account. <clears throat> they, they basically took my the judge ordered me to pay Chevron millions of dollars. That's a whole other story. But I want to point that out. The reason we still call it Free Donziger is because we still have a lot of work to do to restore my right to be a human rights advocate and to live, live with the full rights of... Yeah, absolutely. Oh I guess there's a, there's a difference between being, uh, you know, sort of set at liberty and being restored to the, the possibility of participating fully in society. Boy. Right, that's exactly right. But Free Donziger, there's a lot of articles on there. Um, you, there's ways to help and sign up. We, we send out a regular email to people. We have over 100,000 people now on our list. And, uh, you know, get involved. I mean, I need, I need the help. I'm not yeah. Gonna yeah, that's right. I mean, 
I mean, this isn't over. I need help. I need to be protected. Protecting me protects everybody. They're attacking me as a symbol. They want to silence, you know, this kind of work or effective level. So, you know, we're all in on this. So I, I could definitely use as much support as I can get. And I really thank you guys for having me on. Absolutely. It's thank our pleasure. I hope us. you get more support as a result. Thank you, Stephen. Really appreciate it. Okay. Have a great day. Take care. You, you too. too. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come back to talk about... Uh, so we don't usually do a lot of local news. We're going to do no, some local housing crisis. Fun. Yeah, I think it's going to be it's going to be good. It's an important one. And uh, it's bad enough that the federal government is taking notice. So That's right. You're not serious. All right, we're Political Misfits. We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou, and we're talking now about public housing, social housing, uh, and and Washington, D.C. But of course, uh, the public housing crisis in D.C. might have some specific, you know, specific nuances and specific crimes, but... Uh, we are in a nationwide housing crisis, right? And so all of these details matter when we're talking about where people are able to live, the conditions that they live under, and who is supposed to be, you know, monitoring and taking care of these things. So that's what we are going to get into. And joining us for this conversation is Will Merrifield. He's director at the Center for Social Housing and Public Investment. Will, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So, you know, as people in D.C. watch their rents uh, just shoot upward and at the same time watch tent encampments proliferate all over town, uh, we also learned just this week that a quarter of the city's affordable housing units are sitting vacant. There are, according to The Washington Post, 20,000 people on a list waiting for a public housing unit uh, that there are 8000 units available. And a quarter of those 8,000 means 2,000 of them are just sitting vacant for for periods of two years at a time or more. Um, And this, of course, is primarily a tragedy for people who could be housed and aren't or who are, you know, suffering more than they need to in other options they can find. But it also costs the city money in lost rents and federal subsidies. It costs more than $10 million a year. And D.C. could use that $10 million, I would think. Um, I want you to start by just telling us what what do you think has happened to the city's public housing system? Well, I mean, the public housing system, not just in D.C., but around the country, you know, these these local systems have failed and they failed because the federal government, you know, first of all, made a decision um, with, you know, the Hope Six projects um, and, you know, the successors, the Hope Six, which was choice neighborhoods uh, to starve public housing, let it fall down around residents, and then privatize. So uh, locally in Washington, D.C., the local government has been in lockstep with that federal approach. And, um, you know, they have, for years, they, they've created their own sort of local system that mirrors a hope stick system called New Communities. And the whole point has been for the mayor of Washington, D.C., to control the board of the housing authority and to privatize this very valuable uh, real estate in Washington, D.C., and, uh, you know, really eliminate 
public housing, scatter residents, and move these properties in these in these very you know up and coming quote unquote neighborhoods into uh, private developments. So um, it's it's funny because you know HUD issued a scathing report as right. because it's in horrible condition, but probably the end result of this would be the the hyper privatization because DCHA is now going to say. Well, look, you know, these places are unsafe for people. Now we have to privatize. So at the end of the day, you know, both the local government and the federal government will get what they want, even and and the 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 people living in public housing are pawns of all this. That's exactly what I was gonna ask. How should we see this, you know, this HUD report saying, Oh no, you're gonna have to change I mean the conditions it described are awful, right? Uh lead paint plumbing that doesn't work, mold, water damage, uh, unacceptable levels of violence, uh, which is terrible. But yeah, they say clean it up in three months or else we are going to take further action. And it sounds like possibly the further action could be HUD saying, well, you can't handle this. Let's sell these houses to somebody who can. Yeah. I mean, that's sort of, you know, the issue with land is it's always political. I've I worked, uh, you know, previous to my position now, I worked as a housing attorney in D.C. representing tenant associations through large-scale redevelopment projects Mm -hmm. to keep housing affordable when developers are trying to knock down the affordable housing and build, you know, luxury apartments um, in their place. And clearly land um, is always political. Land in D.C. um, is extremely political because it's so valuable. Um, So... Yeah, it's it's um, it's it's about, you know, I, I think from both the federal and local level, I mean, at the local level, it's always been freeing up this land and, and handing it out to political cronies. And I mean, we have a report from yesterday about uh, how private developers treat uh, people who could access public housing or use housing vouchers. Um, the D.C. attorney general yesterday announced a 10 million dollar fine for three linked real estate companies that had discriminated against some of these households that get vouchers, either by advertising that they wouldn't accept them, which is not legal, uh, or by charging people who do use these dist- uh, you know, housing vouchers, which are sort of in lieu of public housing, um, charging them extra fees. So they have to pay this $10 million fine. They're also not allowed to manage uh, residential housing in the district anymore, which seems like perhaps a, a bigger deal. And so I wonder what you make of, of this outcome. I mean, it's a good outcome. Uh, the attorney general's office in D.C. has done a really good job um, of, of attacking some of these housing issues. It, you know, the, the $10 million sends a message to other, to, you know, landlords in Washington, D.C. And it's important, uh, you know, because I, a minimum wage in D.C., a person makes about $33,000 a year. The average rent for a two-bedroom apartment in D.C. is about $43,000 a year. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is ridiculous. And maybe we'll, we'll talk about social housing as a solution to that. But there's a $10,000 gap between what a worker makes and what rent is. And, you know, that's before food, clothing, transportation costs. So people need subsidies in order to live. And when uh, landlords don't take subsidies in, you know, the neighborhoods where that developer was operating and, you know, the, the wards that have a more economic opportunity, have, you know, the best schools, when, when those vouchers can't be used in those neighborhoods, they are 
shifted into, you know, highly segregated neighborhoods in Washington, D.C., and people are forced to rent on a subprime market. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I worked directly with the attorney general a couple years ago on a case with a developer called Sanford Capital, who was just warehousing voucher holders and people exiting the shelter system on a more short-term subsidy. They were being warehoused in these properties all around the district. They were horribly inhabited. They, they just weren't habitable. And um, what, what the reason I got involved in that case is because this developer had this business model. Um, he owned these properties right above the Congress Heights Metro, and he was warehousing people in very unsafe conditions. Then it came time he was speculating on the land while collecting rents from the city. Um, once uh, there were plans across the street for the city to develop, he put forward plans to knock down those, the units that were unsafe that the people were living in, displace them, and build luxury apartments. So, uh, you know, that, that was about a 10-year fight to get those. We ultimately uh, won a, a legal battle with the attorney general's help and got those properties uh, transferred to a nonprofit developer that's going to build about 200 units of affordable housing over, over those buildings. But there's those cases all over the place. That's what happens when people are discriminated against in these, um, you know, higher opportunity neighborhoods, they're pushed into a subprime market. So the decision was extremely important. However, you know, we're not going to voucher our way out of the housing crisis in D.C. Right. Because what vouchers do, I mean, they're, they're very needed, but what they do is vouchers into the private market also, um, it's another government subsidy into an already smoking hot private market, which actually stokes that market more and raises rents more. And there's a number of people that don't have access to vouchers, either because they don't qualify for vouchers because they make they're in that donut hole where they just make a tiny bit too much money, or there's just not a voucher for them because um, you know there's. 30,000 people on the voucher waitlist now, that has been scrubbed. There were 70,000 people on that waitlist. They closed the waitlist in 2013 and scrubbed it. So that $30,000, that 30,000 person number isn't accurate. There's a lot more people actually on that waitlist because DC's economic development policies have created housing policies that are completely unsustainable. You know, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about, you know, how from the from the side of real estate and development, we ended up with uh, an average wage that's ten thousand dollars less than the average rent. But I also want to make sure we we talk about social housing. So if you think you can give us like a minute on how how development uh, sets the stage for itself to thrive at everybody else's expense, go for it. Yeah, I can actually do that, and it leads into social housing well because in the private housing model that that we're in now, you know, developers are. They're being financed by institutional investors, you know, hedge funds, private equity, sovereign wealth funds. So, you know, this 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 capital, this international capital is flooding into these coastal cities and gobbling up land. And what they're investing is in is luxury apartment buildings. So when they do that, uh, what D.C. does, what D.C. has done is they've seen this flood of investment as positive. Um, uh, for the District of Columbia because, you know, new things are being built. Um, And they've subsidized this wealth. They've subsidized and tried to port this international capital uh, by giving developers public land and public money between, I believe, 2000. 
2003 and 2013, the district gave, gave away about $1.4 billion worth of land and money to private developers to build mostly luxury apartments. And during that same time frame, the district lost half of its affordable housing and losing half of its affordable housing, high-end housing tripled. And during that same time frame, there was a displacement of about 10,000 black residents, and D.C. was named the most intensely gentrifying neighborhood, or I'm sorry, uh, city in the country. So we've gotten to this place by really an economic development model from the District of Columbia's perspective that is encouraging the courting of this capital, the demolition of existing neighborhoods, building them up. Um, into something that current residents in these neighborhoods can't afford and displacing people. Mm-hmm. That, that was incredibly succinct. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you for it. And so talk to us now about what what social housing is. This has been uh, presented uh, by Councilwoman Janice Lewis-George uh, in the Green New Deal for Housing. How is it distinct from the public housing that we have right now? The social housing model is distinct in a very... It's pretty simple. So the model that uh, is in the legislation proposed by uh, Councilwoman Lewis George is based on the housing model in Vienna, Austria, and most, uh, you know, most closely resembles that. And what it is, it's, it's deeply affordable mixed income housing that pays for itself. And the way it pays for itself is in a social housing model, government looks at housing as infrastructure. It builds housing um, that's meant to, you know, meet the needs of working class people. And in social housing, um, it's the the way the Janice Lewis George has built it up. It's a third, a third, and a third. So you have a third, about two thirds of the of the um, of the apartment building is set aside for people making between zero and fifty percent of the AMI. So very like working class people. And then the last third is, you know, 50% and above. And the reason it differs from social housing is this mixed income model to it. So because you have a mix of incomes, everybody pays about 30% of their uh, income and rent. There is no developer, so the profit motive is eliminated. So Hmm. 100% of people's rents are used productively. They're invested back into the building. So every cent you pay goes first invested back into the building to cover the operating costs of the building to make sure maintenance is taken care of. And then once those operating costs are covered, the surplus that remains that would have been profit for a developer goes to pay off the construction costs of the building. So um, the way it's different is this mixed income approach. Public housing has failed because it needs the federal government to continue to subsidize it because in public housing, it was, it's all extremely low income people. So the rents that are paid can never cover the operating costs of the building. And because the rents can cover the operating costs of the building, and because the federal government stopped appropriately funding public housing, we have seen it fall down around its residents. But in social housing, Rents can cover because there isn't a congregation of only extremely low-income people. It's mixed income, so the rents are able to cover operating costs and pay off the construction costs. And we've only got about a minute left, but I wonder if you can talk to us about what's the what's the process to make this a reality in D.C. and and what should people be be looking for if they want to support this? Well, if people want to plug in and, and learn more, they can come to the Justice Center tonight, actually in Washington D.C. at 
5.30 p.m. at 617 Florida Avenue Northwest. We're going to have a kickoff event, and we're going to be preparing people to testify at a public hearing for social housing on November 17th. There's a public hearing um, on November 17th, so we need people to show up, testify that they're in support of the bill, and that this is, you know, the D.C. residents want a new housing system uh, moving forward that uses the public resources for the public good. So come 617 North Florida Avenue Northwest tonight. 530, check it out, learn more about it and get plugged into this local movement. It'd be exciting to be able to be the, uh, you know, the the first, uh, you know, the sort of uh, inaugural yeah. social housing project That's in right. the United States in D.C. Uh, and certainly it, it's not like there's really much to defend in the state of uh, public housing that we have right now. Will Merrifield, thank you so much for joining us. Do you want to tell our listeners any kind of website they can go to to find about, out about this work? You know, I, I just uh, am launching a website in the next couple of weeks, but you can go to my Twitter handle at at will uh, the number four DC. And uh, if you follow that, um, you will be uh, you- enlightened. You'll you'll be enlightened on all things housing. Is that it? Yeah, you'll be able to, to follow the launch of the organization. All right. Thanks. Thanks so much. Will. really appreciate you joining us. I appreciate you for having me. Thank you. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come back and talk more uh, more Bannon, more Russia, more Ukraine, more Joe Biden in Pittsburgh. All kinds of stuff coming up. Yep. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We are live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. Lawmakers from both parties are considering trying to push a $50 billion aid package for Ukraine before the midterm elections, with the expectation that the Republicans will win back the House and will be more hostile, or at least more discerning, about providing Ukraine with a blank check. But is the bill really necessary? At the start of the conflict, Congress passed a Lend-Lease program for Ukraine that President Biden has not yet invoked, despite the fact that there's no sunset provision on the legislation. Republican House Leader Kevin McCarthy said earlier this week that aid to Ukraine will be much tougher under a Republican House. We've been following this fascinating story from New York about an Emmy Award-winning news producer with ABC who has been missing since April. James Gordon Meek had his apartments in New York and Arlington, Virginia, raided by the FBI, which then announced that they had recovered classified documents on Meek's laptop. The question is, is Meek a target of an Espionage Act case for possessing classified documents, or does the FBI want his source? Meek was apparently tipped off that the FBI was asking questions about him in April. He walked away from his job, his apartments, and his life, and hasn't been seen or heard from since. Joe Biden went to Pennsylvania yesterday for the inauguration of a new bridge in Pittsburgh. The old bridge, you'll recall, last year collapsed into the river below it, an example of the poor infrastructure all around our country. While in Pittsburgh, Biden met with Governor Tom Wolf, gubernatorial candidate Josh Shapiro, and Democratic Senate candidate John Fetterman. Fetterman, who suffered a stroke in May, was the only one not to speak. And former Trump advisor Steve Bannon was sentenced this morning to four months in the D.C. jail and a $6,500 fine for contempt of Congress. 
He's the first person in 52 years to face jail time for refusing to respect a congressional subpoena. We're joined by Ted Rawl. Ted's an award-winning political cartoonist, columnist, and author. His latest book is called The Stringer, and he's the co-host of the DMZ America podcast with Ted Rawl and Scott Stantis. Ted, always good to have you. Great to be here. Uh, so such an interesting news day, for sure. What an interesting... I, I said the same thing, you know, for a Friday. I got to stop saying that because there's always news on Fridays. Yeah. You're absolutely right, Ted. I want to ask you... I want to start off by asking you about this Bannon case. Bannon went toe-to-toe with the January 6th committee, and he lost. He was convicted on two counts of contempt of Congress for ignoring two House subpoenas and sentenced this morning, as we said, to four months in the D.C. jail. It's the first contempt of Congress conviction to see jail time in 52 years. Usually these cases are worked out in advance, and everybody gets to save face. What do you think the bigger lesson is here? What's the message for anybody else subpoenaed before Congress, keeping in mind that Eric Holder did the same thing in the Fast and Furious scandal and got away with it? Optics matter. Uh, you know, Steve Bannon, as, uh, as, as Colbert, once when Colbert was still doing comedy, uh, called him the best looking man at the liquor store. Uh, you know he he's like got a, he's a he's got a, a an app he a self cultivated uh, vibe and reputation as a rogue he was kind of the Carl Rove but without the uh, you know the without the sort of uh, professorial vibe um, and he, you know he was considered the brains behind Trumpism and so there were a lot of knives under a lot of togas out to get Steve Bannon and unlike Trump who has a lot of privileges as a former president um, and has a lot of power from running the Republican Party, Bannon was viewed as like, this is a guy we can shiv and get away with it. Yeah. Um, And uh, I think that's exactly what happened here. I wouldn't be at all surprised if, uh, uh, you know, a a second Trump administration would see him pardoned uh, here. And Trump could do that because these are federal charges. Um, but, uh, you know, the, uh, by that point, uh, Bannon will presumably have served out his four months. Yes, I think you're I think you're exactly right. And Bannon, of course, is appealing. His appeal, we mentioned a couple of segments ago, uh, is based on the fact that his attorneys advised him to ignore the subpoenas and Bannon's stated belief that he was exempt from the subpoena because of executive privilege. But you're right. He's perfectly welcome to appeal this, and his appeal appeal won't be heard or wouldn't be heard until well after he completes his sentence. He's going to be, uh, yeah, I mean, I I think he's, uh, you know, he's just basically being thrown under the bus. Um, It's good times for the Democrats. It's 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 a great visual for them. They like it. They want to see him frog marched off. Um, you know, I, I don't think Bannon's appeal would work in any case because uh, taking bad advice from counsel, really, right. I've never heard of that being a successful yeah. appeal in a criminal, in any kind of criminal proceeding. Almost never. Uh, you see it every very once in a while. Um, it's called ineffective assistance of counsel. You see it every rarely once in a while in a murder case, but not a misdemeanor contempt of Congress case. 
Yeah, I just don't. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. like if, if he, I think, I think the what uh, a lawyer would say is that the remedy there would be for him to sue his counsel. Of Correct. course, that's also something that's extremely unlikely to ever be successful for other reasons. Correct. Ted, I want to ask you also about the push for another $50 billion spending package uh, before the midterms for Ukraine. The Ukrainians have made it abundantly clear that they want air defense systems immediately. They want tanks. They want more armored personnel carriers and many, many more guns and ammunition. But there's this Lend-Lease law in the books with no sunset provision, meaning that it, it won't go away. There's not a five-year limit like there normally is on Lend-Lease. They have all these things now. Why do we need to spend another $50 billion? Well, man, with it, you know, with when the Ukrainians are are after you for money, there's no limit to it. They they always want an extension. No they always want more. Um, yeah, they're they're always coming back for more. And you know, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, you can't blame them for that. That's you know, that's their self interest. Um, but uh, I think the I think the lend lease provision is going to uh, raise using that too much is going to raise too many political questions. Because uh, most Americans heard of the Lend-Lease in the context of World War II and helping Britain before the formal uh, declaration of hostilities in Europe. And, you know, that sort of brings the issue like, well, is Ukraine really a U.S. ally in the same way that Great Britain was and remains? And the answer is no. I mean, Ukraine's not a U.S. ally, according to the State Department's own website. It's not an ally. Uh, it's not an officially designated ally. Right. And I think, you know, right. as we head into uh, almost certainly, I think I would say certainly a Republican House of Representatives, um, you know, they're, they're, these questions are going to get much louder. So I, I think they can't really go that far. Um, I think there's going to certainly be a pushback, maybe even a rollback, or certainly a slowdown of assistance to Ukraine under a Republican House. And uh, I think at this point, the administration and the Pentagon are trying to uh, slow, you know, they're trying to anticipate that and not give the Republicans of 2023 uh, more ammunition than they already have to uh, resist this. Agreed. There are still a lot of Republicans who support aid to Ukraine. Here in Northern Virginia, I got a kick out of this. I just noticed it yesterday on my walk home because one of my neighbors has a, a sign in her front yard. Um, there's a Republican running against Representative Don Beyer. She, she has signs up all over the district now saying, save Ukraine, vote Republican. Are the Democrats afraid of Kevin McCarthy just bottling up legislation and not allowing it to go to the Senate for a vote? Or are there enough Republicans who still support aid to Ukraine that McCarthy would be politically damaged if he were not to process bills aimed at supporting Ukraine? Well, I think the problem with the politics uh, for someone like McCarthy is to try to assess where things are as opposed to where they're going. I mean, when you track the polls, you can see that uh, particularly among uh, GOP voters, support for spending on Ukraine is is dropping really at a nice steady pip, uh, clip, um, and you're starting to see it soften up even on the among Democratic voters who have been more friendly to it. Um, you know, the, he's basically the politics of this are like walking around on one of those uh, in one of those fun houses where the metal plates where the floor is moving and you have to you know get from one to the other. Um, you know, it's it's hard to say where this is going to be. Um, 
you know, in a month or two or three. Uh, I suspect that as you go into the winter and the war bogs down in the Ukrainian mud and really no significant progress uh, is going to be made by either the Russians or the Ukrainians, uh, Americans are going to get tired of this. And and those numbers are going to continue to move in the same direction. And, uh, you know, I think uh, you're going to, McCarthy's going to end up with a conference that is deeply divided on this issue. And he's going to have to sort of decide how to navigate that. I suspect where they're going to come out is in favor of continuing aid, but at a, at a lower level. There was a piece in the uh, New York Times, I don't know, yesterday or the day before, talking about how uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene has become the mainstream of House Republicans, that, that she's already bragging about the committee assignments that she's going to have when Kevin McCarthy becomes Speaker of the House. She's bragging at the fact that she has already drawn up articles of impeachment against uh, Joe Biden. She won't say on on what charges um, and, and it'll likely go nowhere. But this is a Republican Party that has very quickly morphed from the Republican Party of George W. Bush and John McCain and, you know, the likes of the traditional neocons to the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world. It's remarkable, not so much because of her ideology, but because of her style. I mean, right. you know, I, I, there's no like nice way to put this. And, you know, I'm not in the business of being nice. So I'll just say she comes off as stupid. And, um, you know, it's that's not there's one thing when you have sort of right wing Republicans who have a style that is. Uh, you know, certainly tolerable. You know, I mean, someone like, say, Ted Cruz, um, uh, but, you know, who is obviously not in the Trump mold, but, uh, you know, say a J.D. Vance or someone like that, right. who's clearly well educated and, you know, a, a bit, you know, used to be an intellectual on TV, not anymore. Um, you know, she's very, she's a different kind of animal. And that, I think that's the part that's notable is that, you know, her style is sort of, Unabashedly, uh, you know, sort of uh, the you know, sort of of sort of know nothing. It's it's very weird. Um, it's interesting that the party is willing to elevate her so quickly. Uh, you know, I, I don't really understand what she brings to the table on a national level. Uh, you know, I certainly understand why the voters in her district support her, but I just don't get it. Like, why? Uh, you know, if this is true that she's going to get all these. Uh, committee assignments. It's kind of like, what's going on? I don't really know. Does she know where the bodies are buried? <laughs> what's you know, up? Back in the back in the uh, the eighties, there was a congressman from Georgia by the name of Larry McDonald. I don't know if you remember Larry McDonald. He was a Democrat, and he was by far the most conservative member of the House of Representatives in either party. I mean, he would he could go head to head with Jesse Helms back in the day. And the reason he was a Democrat is because the Democrats controlled the House. And he said the only way to get any legislation passed was for him to be a Democrat. Uh, He ended up being shot down by accident when when a Russian Air Force uh, jet shot down a Korean Airlines flight and Larry McDonald happened to be on it. Um, But this isn't new. There have been. There have been Marjorie Taylor Greens in in the Congress in the past. They just didn't have access to the media uh, like they do now. It seems to me. 
Well, the, yeah, that's true. I mean, you know, uh, clearly uh, she is a creature of social media, um, you know, much like, uh, you know, pr- former President Trump, you know, and, and we can, they're definitely, you know, there are these figures all over the country, kind of a shockingly <laughs> high number, uh, you know, here in New York, uh, we had Peter King, uh, you know, in yes. on Long Island. Yes, who right. Was, who was, uh, you know, definitely, I mean, I'm just going to say it, he was kind of an idiot. And, uh, you know, he would, but the thing is, whenever he would pop up on national television, uh, you know, ranting from the far rights of the neocon insanity, uh, you know, he was a big figure during the war on terror, Um it's like you could see how he wasn't going to make it to the next level in Washington. You know, he wasn't going to go to House leadership. He, there's just, it was kind of like he had found his level. Uh, you know, apparently it's a different world now with Green. Yeah, apparently it is. I want to I wanna talk to you about uh, bottling up legislation in Congress. Kevin McCarthy said at the beginning of the week that he will not allow a vote on raising the debt limit. This was a tactic that Newt Gingrich used back in the mid-90s against the Clinton administration, and it backfired spectacularly. Uh, What should we expect from a Republican majority in the House? Do you think that they'd be willing to take the country to the brink of of default again? What could they possibly have to gain from that? Well, it's it's baffling because, as you say, John, I mean— this has been tried before, and uh, and not just once. And every time the Republicans have gone there and people have tried to take their kids to national parks and found them closed and Social right. Security checks didn't go out on time, right. uh, there was nothing but— you know, there was nothing but tears for Republicans afterwards. Um, the voters really hated them for it. Uh, Democrats uh, internally have, including, uh, you know, I have suggested this in the past over various issues, um, have flirted with the idea, but they studied the internal polling and determined, I think, correctly that right. it would be it a, a, a huge ta- tactical mistake. Right. So, so uh, yeah, I don't get, uh, I don't know what he's talking about. I have to think he's not, I just have to think it's a bluff. It doesn't make sense otherwise. Um, I, think I just right. don't. I don't think it's true. I, I mean, it, it's just like if he's. I mean, if they do it, it's a you know, it's an act of minor political suicide. I, I have to agree. I think you're right. It's a bluff. Um, Ted, I'm fascinated by this story about James Meek. The fact that he's gone into hiding is sort of secondary to me. More important is the fact that he's been targeted in the first place. This is exactly what supporters of Julian Assange warned was going to happen. If nobody in the mainstream media stood up for Assange, then there would be nobody to stand up for them when the government came after them. It seems that's what's happened here. What do you think the FBI is after? Are they after Meek or are they after his source? Uh, well, I'm sure <laughs> they're after both. Um, I, you know, I do want to just sort of say, push back a little bit on saying that the idea that that in this day and age, in a world with millions of cameras everywhere with facial recognition software right. and license, tra- license plates trackers right. and the whole world that Edward Snowden helped expose, the fact that a dude can go can vanish into thin air like the guys from the Weather Underground did for, <laughs> you know, the better part of a year is pretty impressive. I mean, you know, I'll he's, say. He, he's a smart guy. Uh, or either that or he's got the help of some very smart guys. Ted, let me interrupt um, you. Know, you. I, I said on an earlier show today that one of the books that I had published uh, this year is called The CIA Insider's Guide to Disappearing and Living Off the Grid. And the bottom line is you pretty much can't do it. 
it, it's almost impossible for the reasons that you just cited. Unless yeah. you are, are willing to live strictly on cash, no credit cards, no cell phone, no email, no internet access, no nothing. And you've already gotten out of the country, which he hasn't because right. his passport hasn't been used. Um, it, it's, it's not a long-term strategy. There's only one. Well, he could have left the country, uh, theoretically, right? You can drive across the border into Mexico. No, but so, you still have to have your passport scanned. He can walk across, he could walk across the border in lots yeah, of places, yeah. including Canada. He, he could do I've that if he had the wherewithal. <laughs> oh, I walked up and tagged it and turned around. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think it's that, I'm not going to say it's easy, but it is a long think, land border. Like, I guess anything's possible. Sure. I'm sure he's hunkered down. I'm sure he has assistance yeah. and I'm sure he's, uh, you know, he's being brought, uh, you know, whatever he needs in terms of, you know, food and, and whatever. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it is an, um, I agree with you, John, it's an amazingly interesting story. Um, and you know, yeah, I think it, uh, I think we we're speculating here, but you know, that's what we're in the business of doing. I think he's, uh, I mean, clearly they're after his source clearly, uh, you know, yes, you know, the, the, the excuse, the pretext is that they're tracking down classified data, uh, information on his, on, you know, on his computer devices, but that, you know, that's, that, that, that is now something that could be used to nail any investigative reporter on the national scene. Uh, any, exactly. anyone in the beltway who receives leaked, uh, government documents, uh, which are always, as we all know, completely disproportionately highly overclassified, Absolutely. Uh, is, is vulnerable here. And it's becoming really hard to receive those, those documents in digital form and not have them have some kind of device that can be tracked directly to the reporter involved. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's not true. That wasn't true in the past. You know, I mean, the, the Pentagon Papers, you know, were Xeroxed at the Rand Corporation and, and then dumped off in, you know, in, in rubber-banded reams of, of old dead tree paper. Um, in a way, that was a lot better. Uh, nowadays, it's, it's tough. Everything is leaked electronically, and, yeah. and that, that does leave a paper trail. Yes, it does. And that actually leads to my next question, is what's the government's next step in something like this? Are we going to start seeing cases— Against journalists for the, the Washington Post, the New York Times, and every other outlet that does national security reporting? Well, I mean, the short answer is yes and no. The, the, the yes part is they're all vulnerable. It can happen to any of them. And at some point, uh, when one of them does something that crosses the wrong powers that be, it will happen. Uh, the no is that, of course, they're protect the, these institutions are protected. Uh, they trade favors. Uh, you know, they receive access in exchange for, uh, you know, keeping their powder dry and not reporting everything that they know. So, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're insulated to some extent, but that won't go, that won't last forever. And, you know, I wonder how long that would last under, uh, you know, president Trump uh, right. after January 20th, 2025. Yeah. Good point. I want to ask you also about Joe Biden's trip to Pennsylvania. Biden and Pennsylvania, of course, have a very long history and Biden essentially considers himself to be a Pennsylvanian having been born and raised in the, in the Scranton area. He appeared yesterday, as I said, with Josh Shapiro, John Fetterman, and Tom Wolf. But Biden isn't campaigning for anybody else. And this really wasn't a campaign stop anyway. Bernie Sanders is out there campaigning. He's going to eight different states. Barack Obama's campaigning. He was in Wisconsin this week. This is likely a calculated decision by the White House, right? Is it because of Biden's unpopularity? Yes. 
I think it is. Um, you know, Biden's pop, uh, popular approval rating has bounced back a bit from mm-hmm. the depths of the 37% that we saw about six months ago. But, you know, it's not uh, – last, the last numbers I saw haven't gone north of 42%. No. So basically the president's at about 40 or so-ish. And, you know, that's not a good place to be going, you know, really at any point in time, but particularly going into the midterms. Um, you know, again, I, I don't think this president is running for re-election. Uh, you know, it was, it was a remarkable uh, appearance. You know, it was the Fetterman thing in particular is is weird, really weird mm-hmm. to me. Um, mm-hmm. You know, when you're when you're in a place where you can talk less than you're allowed to talk less than Joe Biden's allowed to talk, um, that's you know that's 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 that says a lot. I mean, you know, I, I think Fetterman was a really good candidate until he got that had that stroke, and the fact that right. so many people are willing to vote for a guy who apparently is it still you know understandably tragically horribly um, in no fault of his own impaired. Um, it, it it tells you so much about the state of team politics in this country. Totally agree. Totally agree. Ted, um, the White House has been very vocal lately about Iranian efforts to help Russia in the uh, conflict in Ukraine. <coughs> Excuse me. The Iranians have been supplying these so-called kamikaze drones to uh, to the Russians. And NBC News had a report today saying that the drones haven't been performing up to spec. So the Iranians have sent technical advisors to Russia. Um, is the White House trying to prepare us, do you think, for some sort of a conflict with Iran? Today, the Iranians um, uh, told all of their citizens to get out of uh, Crimea. Otherwise, what's the point of all these revelations? Uh, you know, it it feels a little bit like the early Bush administration and their rhetoric about the axis of evil. It feels like, you know, they're trying to to tie Russia and Iran and maybe to a lesser extent China. So it's like a two and a half member a yeah. new axis of evil for the 21st century. Um, and it, it, it it's sort of like, let's put all the bets noirs, all the quote-unquote bad guys together in a basket in a way that the harried American voter can understand and easily un- grok. Um, you know, I- Iran's a victim in all this in yeah. U.S. foreign relations. I mean, they're the, you know, we're not the, we're not the ones suffering under Iranian trade sanctions. We're not the ones uh, trying to prevent them. You know, they're not the ones trying to prevent us from selling our products overseas. Right. You know, we're, they're not the ones who, who tried to overthrow our government and we're trying to overthrow it again. Um, you know, it, I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy. Um, but I think, they're trying to make a lot out of it. It reminds me a lot of how, uh, you know, Scud missiles uh, being imported, you know, supposedly sent from North Korea to Iraq was right. a, like an important talking point in the buildup to the uh, war against oh, Iraq. Yeah. It, I remember I it like rhetoric. it was yesterday. I, I think it's rhetoric. I think it's just meant to – it's part of the propaganda mill. I don't think it it moves any needles, but it's, you know, it's just it's just part of that – bombardment like look at the russians yeah now they're in with iran you know iran's bad they're the ones who's to, who who took our hostages right you know, it's it's oh, that yeah yeah it's it's not changed finally ted i want to ask you very simply what in the world is going on in new york you have one of the most fascinating sleeper races in america i think between governor kathy hochul and representative lee zeldin now, everybody just sort of dismissed Zeldin as a nobody, and so many people who who follow these issues don't even know the man's name. 
But the latest polls show Hochul at 47 and Zeldin at 42 or 47, 43. Um, A lot of this rests on the crime and punishment issue. There's this view that that crime is rampant in New York, that this no bail uh, policy hasn't worked. It's made the city more dangerous. What's going on in that race? And does it really come down to the issue of crime? Um, Well, it's very strange because certainly as a New Yorker, I can tell you there's a general sense of widespread anxiety. Uh, You know, there's still widespread um, business closures, uh, tons and tons of um, mentally damaged homeless people wandering the streets. Um, Things are dirty and skeevy and gross and they feel broken and they feel like they're never going to get better. Uh, So... But that's a New York City situation, right? And it, it's not a you know I don't think that the, the the streets of Rochester, uh, you know, or Schenectady are have gotten noticeably uh, worse, and so it's weird that um, the incumbent governor is being held to account. That I mean, that's a Mayor Adams issue, really. And you know, in in fairness, his numbers are in the toilet. He last time I checked, he had a sixteen percent approval rating, uh, you know, which is pretty much along yeah. <laughs> about wow. the same as like STIs and cable companies. Um, he's uh, going to be. So I I think what's going on here is two things. Uh, I mean, it's kind of a replay. It, this really does remind me of the of the senatorial campaign uh, between um, Rick Lazio, uh, also from Long Island, as is Lee Zeldin, who yes. was a sacrificial lamb and running against Hillary Clinton for Senate in 2000 right. in New York. Uh, and what in both cases, Hillary, Clinton was weak because she was a carpetbagger. She wasn't a New Yorker. She, she'd moved here in order to run. Uh, and then L- Rick Lazio was considered weak because he was kind of a wet behind the ears and looked like a little boy. And the Republican Party was just like, well, you can just run to make yourself more famous and that'll be it. Um, in this case, Hochul's weak because she wasn't elected. She was lieutenant, lieutenant, I mean, she was elected, I guess, nominally. Lieutenant governor, but right. She was elected lieutenant governor, but no one pays attention to the lieutenant governor. And she only she's only there because Cuomo is is gone. So she, you know, she's kind of the Jerry Ford in this situation in 1976. And Lee Zeldin, on the other hand, is uh, and I, I lived on Long Island, so I'm I'm very where you know where he's from, and you know he's he's got a powerful personality. He is overperforming. Um, he's doing better than we thought. He seems to be like the right jerk for the moment, for a bad moment, uh-huh. in the minds of a lot of New Yorkers. So uh, the Republicans sort of accidentally uh, did not nominate, as it turns out, a sacrificial lamb. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, nominated and, a real a real candidate, and Hochul. She should be able to shed the albatross of this crime issue because, you know, look, I, I, I don't like her. I mean, she's too conservative for me. But this, this crime situation is not her fault. And it's not really even her business. So except for the fact, obviously, it's the, you know, the nation's and the state's largest city uh, is in her state. So uh, but, you know, New York City residents don't really think of the governor as someone who plays an active role in the city's management or politics. They, they think Albany is three hours north, that the, the governor takes care of upstate. And historically, that's often been the case. So, um, you know, it's, it's, we blame the mayor, even though the mayor is kind of weak. And so it, it, is, it is a weird perception thing. Um, I, I, you know, I, I still would not put a lot of money. If I had money to put on this race, I'd have to still put it on Hochul. But Zeldin's coming 
closer and it's happening faster than the usual tightening of a race as you get closer. So, you know, Zeldin, I mean, who knows? He could, there could be an upset um, by energized Trump voters. You know, Zeldin is kind of uh, in that mold now. Uh, it's the, it's his moment. I think you're right. Thanks for joining us, Ted Rawl. Ted is an award-winning political cartoonist, columnist, and author. His latest book is called The Stringer, and he, he's the co-host of the DMZ America podcast with Ted Rawl and Scott Stantis. You're listening to Political Misfits right here on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned and come back for our next guest. back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou here in the studio with my co-host, Michelle Witte. We are 18 days from the midterm elections, and as everybody expected, the tightest races are tightening even further. The most important races that are still within the polling margin of error are the Senate races in Pennsylvania between John Fetterman and Mehmet Oz, in Georgia between Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker, and in Nevada between Catherine Cortez Masto and Adam Laxalt. Senate races in Arizona, Wisconsin, North Carolina, New Hampshire, Ohio, and even Florida are still neck and neck. Gubernatorial races in Nevada, Arizona, and surprisingly, Oklahoma are also too close to call. The Cook Political Report, 538.com and Larry Sabato's crystal ball all agree that the Republicans shouldn't have much trouble winning back the House of Representatives. We're joined by Eugene Craig. He is a, uh, sorry, a Republican strategist, grassroots activist, and the former vice chairman of the Maryland Republican Party. Welcome back, Eugene. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Glad to be back home with you guys. So glad to have you back. I, I've been excited about getting into these issues with you. It's good to have you, especially with so many races going down to the wire in these last three weeks before the election. Let's start with this odd race for governor of Oklahoma. I was in Oklahoma two summers ago, and literally all of my friends there were raving about the job that Governor Kevin Stitt was doing. Granted, all of my, my friends who live in Oklahoma are Republicans, but now he's actually running behind Democratic challenger Joy Hoffmeister, 4743. That was a poll that came out a couple of days ago. There was a debate between the two last night where Hoffmeister said correctly that that Oklahoma's violent crime rate was above the violent crime rates in both California and New York. And Stitt openly mocked her. But the allegation was true. In the meantime, Stitt, who is the first Native American governor, lost the endorsements of the state's five largest Native American tribes because he reneged on an agreement that the state had with them over casino revenues. It looks like the Republican could lose this race in a very Republican state in a Republican year. Now, one caveat, Joy Hoffmeister was a Republican until last year, and she decided to switch to the Democratic Party only because she wanted to run against it, and she didn't want to do it in a Republican Can primary. So I like... I think I texted you this last night. I was in a car and I'm listening to an ad. It's an ad for right. Abby Spamberger. Right. It's it featuring Denver Riggleman. Right. So this whole thing, there's like, I, I mean, I, I understand where it's coming from, but I also think people should see that this is very, it is, I mean, yeah, 
all people, regardless of political party, should support principle, et cetera, et cetera, right? And I understand why there's one wing of the Republican Party looking at the other and going, we, you guys mm-hmm. are, you guys are freaks. But, you know, there are also some, there should be some basic differences between these parties that we're told represent the right and the left, which That's is, right. of course, stupid. And like, yes. people should take some note when they, you know, all this crossover has got to mean, like, exactly. maybe there's just not that much difference in the first place sometimes. That's what, do you, all. what do you think, Eugene? So, so I think, look, if you look across the map, you're seeing a, a particular phenomenon right now, right? Where I call it the, 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 the fault line between some of these Senate races and some of these gubernatorial races. Use a couple of examples. Um, in Oklahoma, <laughs> there are two Senate races right now. Right. Um, uh, and, and those Senate races are going how you probably would expect them to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, Solidly Republican. Solidly Republican dominant parties running away with it, right? Um, but this gubernatorial race is is, is is becoming closer than closer than what mo- what, what most would want to comfort. Um, but it's something that's not just like unique to Oklahoma. You see the same thing in Ohio, right? Um, you know, the Vance Ryan race is close, whereas the other race is a runaway. Same in PA. The gubernatorial race is a runaway, while the Senate race is close. Um, you look at Georgia, the Senate race is close, while Kemp has had a pretty solid lead, you know, stable, solid lead um, in the gubernatorial race. Um, and so I, I just think it's a weird year. Um, I just think it's a weird year. Um, and if and if we wake up on uh, November 9th and, and Oklahoma has a Democrat governor, I think you know uh, that that may just be the uh, story story of the cycle. I think you're right. I wanted to ask you also about the governor's race in Arizona. A couple of months ago, this looked like a gimme for the Democrats. Actually, it looked like that for a long time. Secretary of State Katie Hobbs, the Democrat looked set early on to be coronated as the governor of Arizona. But the Republican, former TV journalist Kari Lake, has run a very strong campaign. The race was essentially tied until about a week ago. Lake pulled ahead by three or four percentage points, apparently because Hobbs is refusing to debate her. What do you think about this race? Are Arizonans, do you think, willing to split um, uh, their ticket between Lake for governor and Kelly in the Senate race, who looks poised to win? Well, I, I, I'll say this. Um, I mean, this is another one of the situations where, you know, there's a solid, you know, where, where one end is pretty solid and the other end is it's kind of a toss-up. Um, I actually think Kelly's going to help Paul Hobbs over the finish line. Uh, really? I think, I think you're going to have a, um, a, a good number of Republicans that just are not going to vote for, for Carrie Lake. Um, you know, you have uh, folks that are that may even just full on crossover to Hobbs. Um, but I actually think that Kelly's going to help pull over the finish line. Okay, let me ask you a similar question then. In Pennsylvania, where Mehmet Oz is gaining ground steadily on on John Fetterman, many of the polls have them have them within the margin of error. Fetterman's health has become a real problem for him. This was another race that the Democrats were supposed to clobber the Republicans, and it's not working out that way. The polls show Fetterman barely ahead. Oz could certainly win the race. Does the issue of Fetterman's health have legs? Or do you think that Josh Shapiro's popularity is enough to bring Fetterman along with him? Well, I, I think, look, this, what, you, what we're also keeping in mind is, right, Fetterman is somebody who's been elected statewide twice already. Um, 
you know, um, and then with Shapiro at the top of the ticket, I think, look, you know, he, he's led Oz this entire run. Um, I think the stroke um, and his health is playing a role. Um, but I'm going to say this. I think, as per usual with Pennsylvania, it's going to come down to turnout. Yeah. Um, and I think with Fetterman, you know, having that strong base and, and, and you know, that you know, Western PA, Pittsburgh, and, and Shapiro coming uh, with a strong base on Philly, um, I think that, you know, I think they're both going to help drive each other's numbers. Um, and I think it's a seat that, that the Dems flip. Oh, very interesting. Give me your thoughts on what's happening in the Georgia Senate race between Raphael Warnick and Herschel Walker. On the face of things, it looks like Walker peaked a couple of weeks ago. Although the race remains close, certainly, he hasn't gained any ground on Warnick since this abortion story broke. And even the debate where where Walker performed pretty ably, um, it, it didn't seem to help him. Listen, if I could have one thing between for the next 18 days, it would be a daily debate between Warnock. It's <laughs> <laughs> a debate between Warnock. Um, I'm mean, like, the thing is this, right? Um, you know, I, I think if, I, if, I'm, if I'm betting on the race today, I'm probably going to put my cash on, War, on Warnock. Um, you know, I think that Walker, for what it's worth, um, I mean, at this point, it's coming together competently somewhat. Um, and by, I mean, the campaign. <laughs> but I'm just, I, look, I, I say it this way. I think that there will be a lot of folks that are going to be embarrassed to vote for, for Herschel Walker, Trump endorsement or not, and it may just very well skip over that ballot line. You know, I've thought about the same thing. I, I can imagine a lot of Republicans going in there and proudly casting a vote for Brian Kemp for governor, proudly casting a vote for the Republican candidate for Congress, and just not voting in the Senate race. But that, the, other, the other thing is this, right? Georgia is, is, a, Georgia is also a runoff election state. Yes. So we very well could see a situation where, all right, yeah, people skip over the ballot line for Walker, um, but because neither one of them got the 50% plus one, right. um, there's now a runoff election in which we're dealing with this for a couple more weeks at least. Right, which is what happened two years ago. Yep. Mm-hmm. Looking at Ohio, Eugene, the Senate race between J.D. Vance and Tim Ryan has been very, very tight. Ryan is probably the only Democrat in Ohio who could make a go of it. Ryan is accusing Vance of being an out-of-touch millionaire, and Vance is accusing Ryan of being a Nancy Pelosi lackey. What do you see happening in that race? You know, I think that's one of the ones that um, I think would be interesting to watch come back, right? Um, I think turnout's going to be a huge factor. Um, if, if Tim Ryan's able to turn out his voters and then turn out voters that he needs, um, I think he very well could put J.D. Vance play. Um, I also think that, you know, Vance um, has laid a foundation that it's, it's, it's going to be hard to escape. Um, I mean, look, he, he, he dove headfirst into, into replacement theory. Right. Um, you know, um, look, J.D., I mean, uh, Tim Ryan is casting him as the uh, coastal elite. Yes. Like I said, this is a wacky year. And a lot of things that, that will normally happen one way are happening a completely other way. Um, and so, um, you know, I don't think that there's enough money in the world that can help J.D. Vance get over that finish line. Um, I'll put something else out there. I actually think if he gets elected, he's not going to serve his full six years. You know, it's funny that you say that because I was thinking about that, too. Why would J.D. Vance want to be a United States senator? He's had such wild success 
bringing himself up from nothing to be a protege of Peter Thiel, to be a multimillionaire, one of those East Coast elites, East Coast, West Coast elites, even if he's a conservative, why would he want to be in the U.S. Senate? It makes absolutely no sense. No. Um, it's, it's, it's giving experiment, but it absolutely makes no sense. I mean, you know, um, U.S. senators are capped on their outside income. Right. Um, earned income, better stated. Um, yeah, I just don't see any advantages of upside for him to be a good senator. Agreed. A Senate race that looks like a pickup for the Republicans is in Nevada. Catherine Cortez Masto is personally popular, but inflation and the pandemic have hit Nevada hard. They haven't recovered fully from the pandemic. Adam Laxalt, the Republican nominee uh, for the Senate, comes from Republican Party royalty in that state, and he has pulled ahead of Masto in all the latest polls. Do you see this as a Republican win? And do you think that Republican fortunes could extend to could extend to the equally close governor's race? I'm actually watching this race really closely and interestingly. Um, like anything Nevada-wise, um, what, what, how the voters that, how, how the union vote goes is probably how, how the, what's going to decide uh, who wins there. Right. Um, you know, um, who, they just, who, they, who they lay blame on when it comes to COVID is going to decide, you know, how those elections go there. Um. And, you know, Nevada also has its own, you know, slate of problems, you know, localized problems. Sure. Um, but I do think that um, both, of the, both the U.S. Senate race and the governor's race are going to be extremely close to watch um, come election night. Um, you know, and I do think one more time it's going to come out turnout. Yeah. I think a lot, most of these races that aren't like runaways are going to come out, are going to be uh, just based on turnout. It's going to determine who wins. I think you're exactly right. Always enjoy having Eugene Craig on the show. Eugene is a Republican strategist, grassroots activist, and former vice chair of the Maryland Democratic Party. Thanks for joining us. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We'll take a short break and come back with some news of the weird. Stay tuned. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou here with Michelle Witte. It's Friday, and that means it's time for News of the Weird, where we tell you about some of the more offbeat stories in the news. And you want to start with the... Well, I was just going to say, uh, uh, an accuser of Kevin Spacey's uh, survived, <laughs> survived to go to trial, Yeah, uh, but lost. Huh. Kevin Spacey... Uh, the jury deliberated for less than an hour and yeah. found they couldn't convict him of, uh, I mean, I, this was, he was accused of, uh, coming on yeah. to an underage boy in 1986 at a party. Like, right. I'm not really surprised that I think that would be pretty hard to prove. Yeah. I, I think it probably happened. Um, the circumstantial evidence is such that it probably happened a hundred times to a hundred different underage boys, mm. but you can't prove something like that 10 yeah. years after the fact. Yeah. You just but can't. That's not the last. Uh, I think that's uh, he's got more ahead of him. Kevin Spacey has more trials coming. Oh, yeah. 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 He's still in big trouble. And of course, there's your boy, Danny Masterson, the trial you've been pretty excited about. That sounds actually awful. Awful. 
I mean, really. Awful. I think it's two. He's being accused of rape by two victims. Three. Four, oh, three mm-hmm. in this. I think he's been uh, accused by more women. But these oh, are the yes. three who are in court now. And really, the details are pretty grim. And what makes it so scandalous as, is that these women are all Scientologists, right? Danny Masterson is a Scientologist. He was one of the stars of, the, of that 70s show. Um, so he's one of the big shot, famous Scientologists. Yeah. And w- when, you know, the alleged rapes took place, these women went to the Church of Scientology to complain because that's what they're taught to do. And they were... They were threatened into silence. And so in, in pretrial motions and hearings, the attorneys wanted no mention whatsoever of Scientology or the Church of Scientology. And the judge is like, no, 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 you no, no. You can't do it. You I can't mean, it's do like, that. It's, it, yeah, it, it no. affects every aspect of that case. Well, it's almost like Scientology right. is just an evil scam. Yeah, it's hmm. an evil cult. It really is. Well, I want to start things off in North Carolina. So last week in Burlington, North Carolina, police officers responded to a call at 7 a.m. A homeowner told them that as he walked from his car to his front door, an armed man approached him and tried to force his way inside the house. The two struggled and the, the, the man who was doing the forcing had a gun. The gun went off and it grazed the homeowner across his chest, but he wasn't seriously injured. The victim was able to slam the door on the suspect. More specifically, he slammed the door on the suspect's hand. Okay. As investigators processed the scene, they found that a glove was jammed in the door. Did it still have fingers in it? And it still had fingers in it. Oh, no. Oh, no. They, of course, were able to pull fingerprints (laughs) off the fingers, the severed fingers. Uh. And they almost immediately arrested Vernon Forrest Wilson, age 67. He was booked on multiple charges of violence. And is being held on two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Wow! Did they find him at the hospital? I would imagine. Can you imagine? Ah, yeah, yeah. On September thirteenth, ophthalmologist Katerina Cortiva, who practices in Newport Beach, California, shared with her Instagram followers a very troubling video. Uh, Doctor Cortiva documented the removal of what she called forgotten contact lenses uh, from an elderly patient's eye. Oh, no. Like, how do you forget you have contact lenses? I have forgotten. I've forgotten that I had contacts in. And I have really? also once been able, uh, unable to remember if I was wearing contacts because it's at, at night and you're like, right. is it supposed to be this? You know, if, you're, if your right. vision isn't that bad, right. you can go, I can't tell what's normal. Right. Yeah. Well, this guy had 23 contact lenses on okay, his eyeball. I've, never, I've just forgotten that I had one pair in. <laughs> Some of these contact lenses, it says, were so old that they had turned green. Oh, no. And the doctor said they essentially glued themselves together after sitting under his eyelid for a month. Oh, no. So she wrote, don't sleep in your contact lenses. No, and somebody's got to keep a better eye out on on these people. I'll tell you. We get LASIK surgery, everybody. Yeah, yeah, right. Get LASIK surgery. I mean, it's expensive. My but. my first wife had such poor eyesight that her her glasses, when glasses were still made out of glass, they were so heavy because they were so thick that she had trouble keeping them on her face. Wow, sounds like a real nerd. Yeah, she was kind of a nerd. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, she was. Um, even when they 
they changed from glass to plastic. They were still so thick. It was ridiculous. And she had LASIK and she sees like a teenager now. It's, <laughs> which is to say, she sees a party around every corner. Uh, yeah, I don't no, want to get I mean, any parties really where she is. It can affect your perception of yourself. Yeah. It can affect your, how you, per- yeah, I, 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 it's, if you can do it, it's a, it's cool. Yeah. I can't do it because of whatever is wrong with my eyes. I don't, they, they tell me every time, every time I go in, I was like, can I, can I get LASIK? And they're like, no, no, you're not a candidate for LASIK. Huh? Yeah. I don't know why. I mean, I will say you regret every choice you've ever made in your life. When you find yourself on a table, sort of strapped down with your eye open and a giant laser positioning itself over your eye. Definitely. You do want to get off that table and out of the room. Oh, Uh, but like when they put the, the lead, uh, vest on on you at the at the dentist's office i said no 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 last time i i don't use those anymore anyway you don't use the lead vest no, anymore you just want I don't, it i don't need the lead vest oh because right. i don't use anyway mm-hmm, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. it was a little weird keith tyson of sheffield england has maintained a striking topiary that he calls gloria in his front yard he's done this since 2000 now topiary of course is a uh is a shrub or a bush that is trimmed in such a way as to be like a sculpture. I got your number. Great. <laughs> Just for the three Speaking or four of, of our listeners who don't know what uh-huh, a topiary uh-huh. is. Okay. So this bush that he has for the last 22 years depicts a woman lying back in a reclining position with her knees bent. But he says he has a problem with random quote, drunken louts, unquote, entering his yard, usually during the night, and becoming intimate with the shrub. Is this, a, is this like a life size? I'm imagining it's got to be slightly larger Large, than life size. It would have to be larger than life, yeah, you guys I would say. got an Amazon fantasy. Okay. For one thing, he says, the noise wakes him up, mm-hmm. which would be aggravating. But more disturbing, the act Ew. damages Gloria's figure. He says, someone will, sque- will squeeze the breasts. So that will damage it. They're climbing on top of her and pulling her legs apart. You know, it's disgusting. Yes, yes. Now Tyson is begging his community to leave Gloria alone. One Twitter user suggested that he grow a thorny vine through her to deter the assaults. Listen, (laughs) I'm never going to say, I mean... Yeah, obviously, don't damage somebody else's property. This man has worked hard on his provocative shrub. Uh, leave but, him alone. Yeah, sure, leave him alone. But also, you have you have you have shaped a shrub of right. a woman lying down with her legs bent in the air outside your house. You live walking distance from a pub. What do you think is going to happen? I feel like your shrub might be asking for it. Oh, it's a shrug you have created. You have created the situation, sir. Bring her inside. Bring bring her inside. The thorny vine, sure, go for it. I mean, I'll tell you a kind of a semi-similar local story. Theodore Roosevelt's daughter um, lived until the 1980s in a mansion on uh, on Dupont Circle, right? And she was a she was a tough cookie. She was she was wildly popular in Washington among some and wildly unpopular among others. She had a personal feud that lasted a lifetime with Eleanor Roosevelt, for example. They hated each other right. and they had competing advice columns. Mm-hmm. And then she hated Eleanor more when Eleanor's advice column pushed hers out of business. OK, right? understandable. Well, in the 1970s, she was elderly. She was in her, you know, in her 80s by then. And burglars broke into her house on Capitol Hill. I, I mean, on DuPont Circle. 
So instead of putting up an alarm system or even cameras, which while rudimentary were, were in existence at the time, she instructed her gardeners to grow poison ivy all the way up the front of the house. And so when she died 10 years later, that's, that's what it was like. The whole house was covered in poison ivy. I like that as a metaphor. I think that's great. <laughs> you know, an entry in News of the Weird uh, could be this story about an Afghan couple that's accusing a U.S. Yes. Marine of stealing their baby. <laughs> you know, um, and it kind of looks like he did. I haven't read. So I mean, apparently the, the baby, who's about two years old, had been rescued from the rubble of a U.S. military raid that Killed her parents and five siblings. Right. Is what we're told. And she spent months in a U.S. military hospital uh, and was adopted by, uh, she went to the U.S. for further medical treatment with the help of the U.S. Marine Corps and, uh, and I guess, adopted. But have you read more of this? So the, it yeah. turns out, wait a minute. Yeah. He, she was adopted by this, uh, mm-hmm. this military, American military guy. Mm-hmm. And then the remaining family's like, whoa, wait a minute. We have, she has family in she Afghanistan. Family. It's not her immediate yeah, family. Right. But she's there. And they had, in the meantime, uh, given this baby a new last name, given this right. baby a new identity. The baby's bonded with him? I mean, it, the chaos of the withdrawal from Afghanistan, which is a thing that we absolutely should have done. But the stories of, you know, there's still unaccompanied uh, Afghan refugees, I think, hanging out in the UAE in this oh, yeah. giant refugee camp there. Oh, yes. You know, people trying to get their children out of out of harm's way, people being separated from their family members, different family members taking different time to process. I mean, again, how long has it been that we still have refugees? Yeah. You know, who are, who are promised some sure. kind of Decades pathway into the United cases. States. So mm-hmm. Yeah. Decades I thought that was in a, some cases. I thought that was a wild story. Yeah, that was a wild one. You know, our, our, I hate to say, I mean, that's news of the weird, but not in a funny, pleasant kind of way. But this kind of thing happens all the time. Look how many, look how many minors were separated uh, during the Trump years from their parents on the border. Mm-hmm. And, you know, something like half still haven't been reunited with their families. Yeah, because no provision made to be able to find any of these people. Yeah. When you're sending some back across the border and keeping others. Yeah. Yeah. And it's my understanding, too, that for whatever reason... Uh, immigration and customs enforcement. Is that what they are now? I see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Immigrations and customs enforcement just doesn't keep a database of things like this. So if somebody says, hi, my name is, you know, Raul Garcia and my parents are, you know, these yeah. people, they can't go into a computer and say, oh, okay, wait a minute. Your parents are in El Paso and you're in Los Angeles. So we're going to reunite. Not you. their problem. Yep. We're out of time. We're I out of say. time. We'll probably come back to all of this in the future. Yes, we will. For now, got to say thanks to everyone who joined us today and all week. Thanks to our engineers and producers here. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Witte, thanks to all you listeners out there. We'll see you Monday. <laughs>